turn in the book of 1 Kings to chapter 11. We're going to look at the whole chapter in this story in 1 Kings 11, but I'd like to begin by reading the first section, the first 11 verses. Hear now the word of the Lord that is infallible, inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative. 1 Kings chapter 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to those in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives, who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes as I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant." Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning, O Lord, that you would teach us from your word, that you would exhort us, warn us, and encourage us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's something that every parent has experienced, and if they're honest, it's something that they've done as well themselves when they were younger. You know, it's when your kids are watching some movie, could be the most lighthearted of animated fare, and there's usually some moment in the movie when the youngest among the children will come running out of the room or will bury themselves in your chest and say, I just can't watch this part. It's too scary. And then when that part's over, they'll go back to the movie. But it also happens to adults, too. Usually, it can happen in the world of sports. You'll have a favorite player, perhaps a great baseball player, a fabulous basketball player, maybe one of the best running backs there's ever been, and you watch his career go on and on and on and on just a little too far. And you watch and you say, oh, you almost wince. I can remember when he could cut and leave two linebackers in the dust. And now, he looks like a wreck. 
Or the man who was fearsome at the plate comes up and you see the stats. He's batting 180 with no home runs and two RBIs. And we sort of wince. That's what this chapter is like for us this morning. We're in the midst of this passage in 1 Kings. We've seen the first ten chapters outlining all of the greatness that is Solomon. We looked last week that the Queen of Sheba came and she was blown away by Solomon's greatness. So much so that she lost her breath. And we've seen the magnificence of the Lord God shining forth in Israel. The temple is built. Trade is huge. Solomon's authority is seen throughout the nations. And then we get to chapter 11 and we want to collectively hide our eyes. Because we know what's coming. Chapter 7 is the great black spot in Solomon's life. And it's a warning to us. That even in the midst of God's glory, that God is more concerned to be faithful to his word than he is that other people see the magnificence of his church. He's more concerned for his truth, he's more concerned for his grace than he is for the well-being and ease of his people. And so what we see here in our story, as we go through it, we're going to look at the beginning, at the heart of the matter. The first thing we will see in the first eight verses is the heart of the matter. And then we will see that God keeps His Word. God keeps His Word. The heart of the matter is open before us in Solomon's heart. God keeps his word, and we see that God is also in charge of history. God is in charge of history. And after we have looked at all of that, and perhaps winced a time or two, we will look and see the hope of the matter. We'll see the heart of the matter, but then we'll look and see the hope of the matter found in 1 Kings 11. Well, let's look then first at the heart of the matter in the first eight verses that we read. First, I want to remind you of the context in which this story comes to us. It's a context of Solomon's faithfulness. Now, many commentators, some Bible students, perhaps even a study Bible that you have, as you leaf through 1 Kings 1, 2, 3, 5, 7, 9, 10, etc., will take what I would call little pot shots at Solomon. They'll see that forced labor is used to build the temple from the Canaanites of the region. And they'll go, aha, that's Solomon. He's a meanie. Look out what's coming. The text will talk about the gold that's in the temple. And you'll hear, aha, look, he's greedy. But in reality, as we've seen, these first ten chapters are a magnificent tribute to the work of God in the life of Solomon. Life in Israel is great because God is first and foremost. The temple is built. Worship of the Lord God goes forth. The nations see the testimony of the work of God in bringing out what was once a family in Egypt to a great and powerful nation now ruling this sector of the world. This is the context. It's almost wholly positive. 
I want you to remember that because I think it makes for an even greater contrast with what we're going to see in verse 11. God had blessed Solomon with everything. Wisdom, wealth, power, peace. He was the envy of all. But then we come here to chapter 11 and we see something very important. We see that Solomon has disobeyed the word of the Lord God. Our historian tells us that Solomon loved many foreign women and he took them as wives. Now, we're reminded here that there's a commandment against that. You shall not enter into marriage with them. Neither shall they with you, for they shall turn away your heart after your gods. This comes from Deuteronomy chapter 7. But there's a little bit more to this text. It won't be surprising when I read it to you. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve under other gods. Then the, Lord, the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. You see, right there in black and white for Solomon, he could in his late leisure time roll out the scroll and say, Deuteronomy 7, don't take foreign wives. God will destroy you if you do. But what does Solomon do? He takes Many, many wives. Now, lest you think this is an exaggeration and probably is made up, who in the world has 700 wives and 300 concubines? The answer is almost every king in this region at this time. As a matter of fact, there are other kings who have more wives. Why? Because, you see, having a wife was not so that you could have a beautiful woman around or a wonderful cook or a companion. No, a wife was a living, breathing, walking treaty. You wanted to have peace with another nation? You swapped wives. You added an extra wife. That was how you knew that you wouldn't attack each other. I want to be at peace with you. Give me one of your daughters for wife. Look, here's my niece. And this has been true in human history up through the 19th century. So you can see here, this is a part of Solomon's political strategy. It's not just that Solomon wanted a bunch of beautiful babes hanging around. No, Solomon wanted to be safe and secure. And he thought the way to do that was to act like every other monarch in the world. To intermarry. Do you see the difficulty here? Solomon has a direct command from the Lord God, and he says... Not so much, God. I don't think you're smart enough in this area. You know, this is a difficult place in the world. Lots of trade routes. Lots of various tribal chieftains. I better hedge my bets and get some extra wives. So he violates the command of God by taking foreign wives. But he doesn't just take foreign wives. He breaks another command. It's what we might call a compound fracture. Any of you ever had a compound fracture? That's that really ugly when the bone breaks through. Very difficult to heal. Here Solomon breaks a second command. That is, not only does he take foreign wives, he takes many wives. Deuteronomy 17, 17 in black and white says that the king shall not acquire many wives for himself. You know why? Deuteronomy 17 says, lest he turn his heart away. 
Sound familiar? Solomon had the game plan in front of him. Solomon had the warning of the word of God, but he chose to ignore God's word, to disobey it, and to go out on his own. And it's not surprising then that what happened was his heart was turned. His affections were turned. Do you notice the language that's used here in verses 1 and 2? Solomon loved many foreign women. It doesn't just say that he married them. It says that he loved them. And then, as if we didn't get the point, verse 2 presses it home. That he clung to them in love. He clung to these in love. Now, turn back just a few pages... And I want you to compare that sad testimony with the testimony in chapter 3 and verse 3. Where it said that Solomon loved the Lord. And you may recall, if not, you can look back at your notes, that I told you that this was perhaps one of the most unique statements in all of the Old Testament. That very rarely is the statement that a man loved the Lord found in the Old Testament, in those words. I think this is the only instance in First and Second Kings. So it's the pinnacle of Solomon's devotion to God has now been flipped into clinging in love to foreign wives, into clinging to disobeying God. Well, what does this mean then? Why should God really care if Solomon has to have a couple of extra ladies hanging around the house? So he's got to build a bigger palace. So he has to add, let's see, 700, 300, 999 bathrooms. Why should God be concerned about that? Well, it's because there is a principle that is true in 1 Kings as much as it is true in Galatians, as much as it is true in Romans, as much as it is true in Genesis. And that is that God looks and is concerned with the heart. Do you notice here what kind of a sin this is? The first thing we see is that it is a gradual sin. It took years for this sin to manifest itself. It says, when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart from the Lord. You know, this is something that I think we ignore to our detriment in the church today. If we go out and we look and we survey, we will find every church with a youth program. We will find nearly every church with a children's program. Now, there's nothing wrong with ministering to our youth and our children, but how many churches of Jesus Christ are concerned that the elderly among us finish well? That they are examples to us of walking with the Lord, memorizing Scripture, being found in prayer. You see, Solomon had no such ministry. Solomon moved from the temple. He moved from prayer. He moved from the Lord gradually, quietly, almost imperceptibly. And you see, it wasn't just a gradual sin. It was a subtle sin. Why? Because what was Solomon doing? Was Solomon robbing people blind? Was Solomon murdering people in the streets? Was Solomon, even does the text say, committing adultery? No. What Solomon was violating 
was the first great commandment. This is, as one commentator says, first commandment stuff. The thing about violating the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, is first and foremost, it is dangerous and deadly. And secondly, it is perhaps the easiest commandment to hide up in the pocket, in the inside of our coats. Not showing anyone. We smile on Sunday. We don't take money from anyone. We're dedicated to our wives and husbands. We honor the Lord's Day. We never use God's name in vain. And yet, the disease of walking away from the Lord God as the Lord of our life takes root as a cancer in us. It's a subtle sin. And not surprisingly, it's an internal sin. You see, the church is well-versed in pointing out and chastising external sins. And good for the church. Because we should be pointing people to repentance when we can see their sin. But when sins come from within, it's much more difficult to discern them. Notice how our historian speaks of this. He says that Solomon clung to these women in love, and in verse 3, his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Over and over again, the word heart is used. And you'll recall that the heart here for the Hebrew is not just that red, valentine-looking organ that pumps blood. It's not just the seat of gushy and sappy emotions. No, it's the core of the being of the Israelite. And so from out of the heart flows what? Our Lord Jesus says in Mark 7. All manner of sins, murders, thefts, blasphemies. You see, internal sin leads to external sin. So Solomon doesn't just turn his heart from the Lord. What does he start doing? He starts setting up Temple Junior to Chemosh. Temple Junior to Moloch. Get your Moloch dolls over here. Sacrifice your children over there. He starts setting up a temple to Ashtoreth, the horrible fertility goddess of the Canaanites. And you see, our author wants you to get the picture of how horrible this is because he called, he doesn't even call some of these entities gods, so-called, like Paul does in Corinthians. He says, Moloch, the abomination. Milcomp, the abomination, the detestable thing. Internal sin leads to external. And then we see, perhaps much to our surprise, after we've been viewing Solomon's sin, we see that God keeps his word. In verse 9, the Lord was angry with Solomon. God is angry with Solomon for what he has done. 
You see, God is concerned with the heart. This is an Old Testament passage, but still, because it's biblical, God sees Solomon sinning in his heart, that his heart is not right, that he has divided loyalties, and God is angry. And this anger flows out of God's jealousy. You see, God is not petty here. God knows that he alone is the true king. Lord and creator of the universe. He knows he alone is the one who keeps covenant. He knows he alone is the one who delivers his people. He knows he alone is the one who provides hope. And he says, Solomon, you're off in the wrong direction. I've warned you. And now I need to take a very stern tone of voice with you, Solomon. You ever done that with your children? They're playing with matches running around near the curb. We had that happen to us just yesterday. We're out playing at Cinco Ranch Junior High School baseball. Ball gets thrown. One of my boys gets a little too close to the curb. I whip around, and I barked at him in the most authoritative voice I could because I don't want him to get hit by a truck or run over by a car. You see, that's what the Lord God does here with Solomon. And you see, this surprises us, but it shouldn't. You see, in this day, the Lord God is the only one who has this kind of jealousy. All of the other pagan deities and their followers were happy if you had a little bit of Ashtoreth and a little bit of Milcom. Mix them all together. Some deities were even part A from one, part B from another, make a new deity. It's the same thing experienced by the apostles. As Paul goes from town to town, they're not upset that he worships the Lord God or the Lord Jesus Christ. They're upset that he won't worship Jesus and Diana. Jesus and Zeus. You see, to the pagan, the more the merrier. Does that sound familiar to you? It should, because that describes our day and age. You see, the reason people snicker at work or at school or at the McDonald's, is not because you believe in God in some vague way, along with all of the other deities of the world, Buddha, and Allah. No. It's because, as a Christian, you are called to say, the Lord God alone is God. None other. This is what happens today. You see, God is not a pluralist. He doesn't call us to that either. But the other thing I want you to see is that God keeps his word, not just in being angry, but God keeps his word because this anger does not cancel out his word of grace to Solomon. Now, if you read through this passage and you're familiar with the Old Testament, there's probably a passage that jumps out at you. Perhaps even Lane has covered this in his Sunday school. It's when the Lord God says he's going to tear out the kingdom from Solomon, what might jump out of you is 2 Samuel 15. When Samuel says to Saul, because you have disobeyed the Lord God, I am ripping the kingdom out from you. You will have no more part in the kingdom. Your line will be finished and I will give it to David. And so as we read here, 
God says to Solomon, I will rip the kingdom out from you. You'll have no more part of it. I cancel my promise to David. I'm giving it to Jeroboam. He's my new king. His line will be eternal. No more Davidic kings ever. Right? Isn't it interesting that that's not what God says? But that God says instead, in verse 12, He basically says, I'm going to take the kingdom away, but not now. For David's sake. Not in your day, Solomon, but in your son's day. And then he says, not only not now, look in verse 13, he says, I'm going to take the kingdom away, but not all of it. Just ten of the tribes. Now, you may be confused by the math. You all know me and math. Twelve tribes, ten taken away, one given to Solomon. There's a remainder there. Where's the twelfth tribe? And I think it's that the Lord God is simply combining the tribes of Benjamin and Judah because of where Jerusalem is located. But you see, God says, I'm going to take this kingdom away, but I'm not going to take it away now, and I'm not going to take it all away. And why does God give these important qualifiers? Is it because Solomon is smart enough and wealthy enough, and gosh darn it, all the Canaanite kings like him? No. For David's sake. For David's sake and the promise that I made to David, I will keep my promise and I will withhold my anger and I will limit my wrath, says God. God keeps his word both in judgment and in mercy. And then we see that God is able. He's not only willing to keep his word, he is able. Because God is in charge of history. Could you imagine CNN, JNN, the Jerusalem News Network, recounting this? What would they say here in verse 14? And there was this man, Hadad. And they took a poll and they found out that he was in charge. And there were all sorts of things going on. And there's many various societal factors that caused Hadad to be in charge of this people, the Moabites. We could point to the fact that the people of Benjamin and Ephrath were mean to them. And therefore they had a right to rebel and become enemies. Or we could say perhaps that they weren't given two chicken in every pot and therefore they were angry and rose up. No. What does our historian say? And the Lord raised up an adversary. You see, Hadad does not happen in a vacuum. And neither does Rezan that we see later here in verse 23. From verse 14 to verse 22, we have this story of Hadad. And he's an interesting fellow. He comes from a people that David defeats. And Joab, you remember Joab? The general without a conscience? Joab goes in and he butchers the men. Not exactly the way to win over hearts and minds. And Hadad escapes. And where does Hadad escape to? Egypt. This is why stories are interesting. Why does Hadad go to Egypt? What else has happened in Egypt? Is there any relationship, kids, between Israel and Egypt? 
Well, of course there is. That's where Israel came out of. We're reminded of that even when Hadad says, not once but twice, let me go. But there's something else here. Hadad goes down there. Pharaoh likes him and he says, hey, take my sister-in-law as your wife. And when we think, and we look back at verse 1, that Solomon loved many foreign women along with whom? The daughter of Pharaoh. Do you see that? The same man that gives Solomon his daughter gives Solomon's sworn enemy his sister-in-law. So much for the power of politicking. It's almost as if the historian is saying to Solomon and to those who came after him and to you and to me, don't put your trust in princes, just like the psalmist says. They'll turn on you on a dime. They'll support your enemies. And we see that God raises up two enemies, Hadad and Rezan, and he surrounds Solomon. Hadad is in the south, Rezan is in the north. Where Solomon was once, you remember chapter 4, surrounded by peace, verse 24, now he is surrounded by enemies and war. And it's because the Lord has done it. Just as surely as he has given him peace, now he is giving him war. And we see that God raises up adversaries at times to point his people to repentance. Paul knows that. 1 Corinthians 5. What is his advice to those who are dealing with the sinful man in Corinth? He says, hand him over to Satan that he might be reclaimed. God raised up an adversary against Solomon. Do you know what the Hebrew word for adversary there is? Satan. That's where we get the word Satan from. The adversary. You see, God uses even the wickedness of men to his own purposes. God is behind history. But God is also consistent. He's not hypocritical. God had promised David, in verse 14 of 2 Samuel 7, that he would be to David's son a father. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But I will not abandon him. I will not forsake him. God does not go back on his word. He is consistent in history. And he shows Solomon the illusion of trusting in princes, trusting in himself, trusting in his own wisdom. He says, you're a fool, Solomon. Life, peace, and happiness are only found in me. God shows that he's behind history, that he's consistent, but also that he is still in control. Because you see, God sends Ahijah the prophet. And whose prophet is Ahijah? God's prophet. He sends him to tell Solomon, not only do you have enemies from without, you have enemies from within. I'm going to take the, the kingdom from you. And the prophet comes out like all Old Testament prophets do. There's no, I wonder what God is really saying here. I wonder if God really wants me to be faithful to my wife. I wonder if God really meant when he said, 
don't steal, that I couldn't take things from people I don't like, or just if it was from people I do like. No, the prophet comes out and in all drama, takes off his brand new cloak, just like if it was a brand new suit coat, and he says, stand there, Jeroboam, and he rips it. One, two, three, four, all the way down to twelve. And he hands the ten pieces to Jeroboam. And he says, I will divide the kingdom in twelve pieces, says the Lord God. And ten will be yours. But two I will preserve for David, my servant's sake. It's dramatic. But it's not just drama. There's interpretation there as well. This is the way the Lord God speaks. He gets our attention. And he tells Jeroboam, and he tells Solomon himself, God is in complete control. Ahijah is his prophet, and also Jeroboam is his instrument. Who is this Jeroboam? If we look here from verse 24 and down, we see that he's an Ephraimite. He's from Joseph's family. He's from the north. He's from outside Solomon's power base. Solomon's power base is in the south. He's a young man, but he's very skilled. He is very able, verse 28. And he's industrious. The words here behind industrious you've heard before. Jeroboam is an ish hail, a man of valor, a mighty man, the same kind of man Boaz was. He's a man of power. And authority. He's a young man, but he's powerful. But even though he has that going for him, he doesn't know how to listen either. We're going to see his great sins in a few chapters, but do you notice something? God tells Jeroboam, I have designed you to be my servant, to be my instrument. I'm going to give you the kingdom, but not in Solomon's day, in his son's day. And so what happens? Well, I think we could take from the text, if we look at verse 40, that Solomon finds out and he tries to kill Jeroboam. Why? Well, I think it's not because Jeroboam is sitting on the sidelines saying, I'll listen to you, Lord, I'll obey and wait for your timing for Solomon's son. No, I think Jeroboam says, God's going to give this to me. I'm going to go out and grab it now. And he doesn't listen to God. He jumps the gun. Solomon gets wind of it. He tries to kill him. But God is still in control, and God is not worried that things are going to go off the rails. Do you feel like that sometimes? You try to control circumstances, and in the middle of trying to control it, you're worried they're going to go off the rails. Not so for the Lord God. He knows exactly what He's doing. And you see, God doesn't fall to the temptation we might. We might be tempted if we were in the Lord's spot to say, well, okay, so Solomon isn't so good with the worship thing, but Israel is a beacon to the nations. Look at how neat the temple is. Look at all the people. Look at all the wealth. Look at Israel is the pinnacle in all its history. Do we want to throw all that away just simply because there's something in the Bible that says we shouldn't do that? God says, yes. I care about my word, not the money. 
I care about my word, not the reputation. I care about my word, not the opportunities. He stays with his word. God is in charge. Let all the earth tremble before him. So we see here that the Lord God looks out over Solomon. And he says, Solomon, you're not obeying me. But I must keep my word, and I'm able to keep my word. And so we might be tempted to say, all is lost. We might be tempted to say, you see, everything depends on man. Solomon has butchered God's commands, and now there's no hope for Israel. There's no hope for the covenant people. But the historian comes out and he says, no, Solomon didn't make the covenant. Solomon didn't set the terms. Solomon didn't give the grace. God did. And he holds out hope, the hope of the matter. And we see that beginning in verse 34. The Lord God says, Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him a ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, who kept my commandments and my statutes. You see, the hope comes from God. And if we think about it, this story drives us to the Lord Jesus Christ. It strips everything else away. You see, we're tempted in our modern mentality to place our hope elsewhere. What do we say? There are not enough heroes in the world. We need more positive role models. We need to make sure that sports figures are positive role models, that adults are positive role models. And if kids have positive, good heroes, they'll turn out all right. Uh... Solomon's father was David, who for all his other faults, never divided his heart from God. Solomon had the hero to look up to. And what did it get him? Nothing. We might say, well, you see, what's really needed is a great experience of God. We need to have God come down and touch us. We need to have close, experiential relationship with God. God physically appeared to Solomon not once, but twice. What did it do for Solomon? Well, we might say, well, okay, it's not experience. Education is the solution. If we just spend more money on education, if we just find the proper education, if we just find the proper way of educating, and I don't care whether that's the right money or the right place, but let's just make sure that we teach our kids right. Who was Solomon's teacher? It was the Lord God himself. Do you see here? All other things that we could hope in are stripped away. And God says, you must come to me. And when we see that, we see this judgment that comes on Solomon is actually accompanied by God's mercy. It's not counter to it. You see, God says, I will chasten him as my son. I will drive him back to myself. I will show him the error of his ways. God tells Solomon that. In verse 11, he says, I will tear this kingdom away, yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days. And I will not tear away all the kingdom. God tells Jeroboam this. 
in verse 31. He says, I'm not going to take the whole kingdom away. So what happens here? Well, I had an opportunity to mention earlier in this week to some folks, some of you may have heard and know Paul Harvey with the rest of the story. The rest of the story actually isn't found here. But you know it. We went through it together. You remember the book of Ecclesiastes? You remember Solomon, the man who said, I had it all, all the women, all the money, all the food, all the time, all the everything. And you know what I say? Blah. I want God. That's the rest of the story. That's why Solomon can say in Ecclesiastes 7, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things, to know wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. Listen closely. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. See, Solomon's not talking about all women here because he's got bad things to say about men in another place. What he's saying is, I know what it's like to be ensnared by women. And I know what it's like to escape because of God. His father, I think, prophesied about this. David was a prophet in Psalm 37. David said of the righteous man, though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. You see, what this story that you want to hide your eyes from and go away from and not hear tells you is, there is always hope in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter how black your sin is, that you reject God and you set up temples to abominable things, that you are enticed away from the Word of God, that you disobey the clear Word of God, your hope is found in Jesus Christ and the grace that is found in the Lord God. Solomon found that grace again. You can too. I can too. We need it every day. That's why this story is before us. It's not so we can tisk tisk and say, oh, too bad for Solomon. It's so we can say, I find life and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter what is in front of me. Do you know that hope? If you don't, I'm no Ahijah. I'm not going to rip up my coat. But I am going to call you to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That in Him alone can you find salvation. In Him alone can you find worth. In Him alone can you find hope. It's the only place to turn. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we look upon you, O Lord, in wonder upon wonder seeing the work that you have done in our midst. And we ask this day, O oh Lord, that you would indeed point us to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might know him and his righteousness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Now may the grace of the Lord God, the one who perseveres with you and with me for the sake of that great Son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, be with you now and forever. Amen.